0: Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly And if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Samuel
1: chapter 4. And uh, we're going to read this whole chapter together one thing about the narrative portions of scripture to cover a bit more ground to get the the full picture here so we'll just read chapter four together first samuel and the word of samuel came to all israel now israel went out to battle against the philistines they encamped at ebenezer and the philistines encamped at aphek The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the Ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled before the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. About the time of her death, the woman attending her said, "'Do not be afraid, for you have born a son.' but she did not answer or pay any attention and she named the child Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband and she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured and we see that even though we're reading a text that is 3,000 years old. There is still much application for us today, reminding us that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's ask his help as we look at this passage together. Please bow with me. Father, we come once again before you. And Lord, we acknowledge that we do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we trust that this word is also given Lord, for our instruction, for our example and building up. And we remember that the Lord said that all the prophets, all the scriptures point to Him. And so we pray that even as we consider these troubling uh, accounts in the history of Israel, that we might still see Your wisdom and Your sovereignty over all things unfolding. Lord, even You bringing about the plan of redemption through the seed of Abraham. And so we ask for your help now as we consider these passages, that my words would be in accordance to your scriptures, that it would be for the building up of your people and spoken in the strength of your Holy Spirit. We ask this now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. The title of this morning is simply God Departs, or perhaps we could say maybe more clearly that the people realize that God has actually already departed. It's just the the realization that God was actually no longer for them, but had actually turned them over to their enemies. I suppose we all have different times when we've maybe depended on something that we didn't actually have. Perhaps you've had the frustrating experience of traveling somewhere maybe a decent distance from home thinking that you had a spare tire on your vehicle and then suddenly you have a flat and you begin looking around and you realize you actually do not have a spare tire and now you must try to track one down can be a frustrating experience or maybe you've had a fire extinguisher hanging on the wall for some time never really had to use it but you've always kind of known it was there and suddenly in a moment of panic you dump some water on your grease fire and it turns into a much bigger problem you go for the fire extinguisher and it turns out that it actually is not charged and nothing comes out when you squeeze the trigger or maybe you're like me every time I try to make something well I shouldn't say every time it's a little over uh, generalizing I suppose but when I sometimes when I attempt to make something in the kitchen which is not very often uh, you get to the almost the end of, of what you're um, making and you realize that you're missing usually it seems the the baking powder and now you have what you hope for pancakes are going to be something like a crate or a very flat piece of bread and and uh, this happens to us in many different ways and times sometimes these experiences are frustrating at best sometimes they actually can be very dangerous and even lethal if we are uh, in the wrong situation And what we have here in this account is Israel had assumed that God was with them, that God was actually going to go before them in battle. And as the time comes for them to go up against their enemy, the Philistines, they realize that God actually was not with them at all. And it cost them dearly and resulted in one of the greatest catastrophes in Israel's history. One of the incredible mysteries to us is how God's decrees, how God's plan, is carried out through the context of humanity. Through all of the desires and scheming of man, though the, even through the, the good intentions and the well-thought-out plans, but even through the wicked plans and even the, the godless plans, through all of that, we see that God is able to weave his sovereign purposes. For we know that this account, this event was not something that caught the Lord by surprise. In fact, he had told Eli through the man of God, the prophet, that such a day was coming. He affirmed that word through the prophet Samuel as he was called by the Lord we saw last week. And God told Samuel that there is coming a day when both sons of Eli will be put to death and the line of Eli will be brought to uh, an end, if not cut very short. And so this is the moment that God had warned Eli, and it comes about by the hands of the pagan nation, the Philistines. Eli did not know exactly how everything would unfold. He does not seem to know that even the ark itself would be taken. And yet we trust that God is the one still working through these seemingly... uh, disconnected circumstances or maybe uh, even random circumstances you could just imagine the various new news broadcasters of the day trying to report on what happens we see this all of the time don't we? we we turn on the news and some great event has happened and it's reported on as though this is completely random completely meaningless as though the events unfolding have have no purpose no design uh, no actual um, benefit in the long run as though we are just kind of being tossed to and fro on a meaningless sea of of, uh, of 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 emptiness. But that's not the picture of the scriptures. Even these dark, even seemingly hopeless times in the life of God's people are not without purpose and not outside of God's control. So we'll try to break this section down into three parts this morning. And... Uh, First of all, we just simply see Israel at war. We see Israel at war with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are a growing threat. And you may recall in the book of Judges as Samuel, the last judge in Judges. Now, Eli is referred to as a judge here. And we'll see Samuel is also referred to as a judge. And Samuel being the final judge. is, is This is nearing the point when God ends this era of The judges of Israel and uh, Samson, as you recall, was raised up by God. He was given supernatural power and strength to actually fight against the Philistines specifically. Now, Samuel, uh, sorry, Samson foolishly uh, chose to uh, enter into a relationship with a Philistine woman, Delilah, which ended up bringing about his downfall and his demise. But even at that point, the Philistines were an increasing enemy. They were growing in strength. They were growing in boldness against Israel. We see that they did have something of an awareness of the history of Israel. They, they knew about Egypt. They, they knew something of even the plagues that came upon the Egyptians as God delivered them. And so it's almost like the, the Philistines are kind of constantly testing the water, pushing a little bit more and more against the people of Israel to see what might happen the Philistines were actually more of a seafaring people and they generally settled along the coastlines. But here we're told that they go up against war at a place, we're told, Ebenezer. And this is probably about 20 miles from Shiloh, well into the Israelite territory. So the Philistines are are pushing the boundaries. They're, they're getting bolder and bolder and they are challenging Israel on their own territory. This is not just the Philistines defending what is theirs, but it's actually them advancing slowly into the territory that belonged to the 12 tribes. And they were a very well-established nation. They had a, they had a government structure. We find these various cities of Philistia that had their individual kings. Phil, the Philistines had a standing army that were believed to actually be paid. So they had a paid army. They were well-trained. They were a nation of warriors against Israel who really were 12 somewhat disorganized tribes the closest thing Israel had to a unified leader was the high priest himself and we know in this account the high priest Eli and uh, his sons are apostate they are uh, really not walking with the Lord they're not leading the people according to God's Word and they are not so much skilled warriors as shepherds and farmers And so the people of Israel, when there's a problem, they form more of a militia calling from the various tribes to send forth warriors to help with the current crisis. So we find that Israel is initially defeated by the Philistines and 4,000 of their soldiers are taken. And this is hard for us to really get our minds around. This is like all of Fairview being lost in battle in a single day. And this is no small loss for the people of Israel. But they retreat and they begin to regroup themselves. Now as we consider their evaluation, it's very interesting to note um, what they make of this initial loss. They have the discernment to understand that God himself had not defended them but had defeated them. In verse uh, 3, you read this, the, the elders of Israel come together... So these are not, um, you know, military generals. These are, are, are more like shepherds of the people, the elders. They're not trained in warfare. But as they come to evaluate what has happened, they say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, they start off on the right track. They understand that, that really, ultimately, it's not just that they have lost in this skirmish against the Philistines, but that God himself had handed them over to the Philistines. God himself had not fought for them. Israel understood very well in coming to the promised land that it was God who had gone before them, giving them victory over their enemies. It wasn't their military might or their strategy or their superior weaponry or their, their advanced training. They had an awareness that it must be God who fights for them. And they discerned rightly that God had handed them over. But they fail to respond to this truth correctly. Do you remember the account in Joshua 7 when Joshua is entering into the the land that God promised and they go up against AI and they spy out the land. They kind of scope out the people at AI and, and the spies come back and tell Joshua, you know what? This is actually going to be a really easy battle. Don't even bother sending in all of your troops. Just send a few thousand and, and they should be able to, to, you know, destroy this enemy no problem. And what happens is they go in confident in their ability to overthrow the enemy, but they are defeated. They are routed. They, they end up running back, retreating. And Joshua's response at that point is not to say, okay, well... I know what we'll do. We'll take the ark of God and we'll send that in ahead of time. And then we will defeat the people of AI. No, what Joshua does is he gets on his face before God and he cries out to God. God, what has happened? Please show us our sin. Show us why you have given us over to the people of AI. And he seeks the face of God in humility and in repentance And God begins to help Joshua understand that there is a man among them, Achan, who had taken some of the items that were supposed to be destroyed and he had hidden them in his tent and sinned against God and broken the, the, the word of God. And so God tells Joshua, if you bring down judgment upon Achan in his house for his sin, then I will hand the people of Ai over to you and so that's what they do they seek the lord they purge the the evil from their midst and they go into battle and god in fact gives them great victory over ai that's what the elders should have done they should have humbled themselves before god and prayed to god lord show us our sin show us where we have violated your covenant that we might purge the evil from our midst and then seek the lord before going back against people of philistines but what do they do well we're told that they put their heads together they they come up with the best reason that they can muster according to their own wisdom and they come up with a plan to send in the ark of god that they'll go to shiloh take the ark from the tabernacle or get the priests to carry it the probably around 20 miles to the battle line And they think that, well, God will then uh, destroy the enemies. But they actually don't even say God. Listen to how they they phrase this. Um, They actually make reference to the ark saving them. They say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us. Do you see the the subtle shift in their thinking? Not so much God himself will save us, but this ark, it will save us. This wooden box will deliver us from the Philistines. And as Alistair Begg said, there is no reverence for God here, but simply respect for a box. They had turned the ark of the covenant in their thinking into something of a good luck charm. They're they're not acting here as true worshippers of the living God, but rather they look more like superstitious pagans carrying around their lifeless idols. They had turned the Ark of the Covenant into some form of token, some form of good luck charm or a rabbit's foot that you might carry it before you and, and bring about good luck in the battle. It's almost the view of of Indiana Jones in the the story where he's trying to seek out the the lost ark, and the idea in the story is not so much that this represents the God of Israel, but that the ark itself is some kind of super weapon that if it's carried into battle will just begin sending lightning out of itself and destroying whoever, whichever enemy it is brought against that's almost the the idea here that the ark is like their secret weapon that they're going to roll out into the battlefield and, and it will just sort of magically begin to take out the enemy and there's something like hairless samson charging into battle not realizing that god had left them all together and we're also told this is how Hophni and Phinehas end up in the battle. They come from Shiloh carrying the Ark as they are the ones that are technically qualified to carry the Ark. Eli being old and blind and overweight is, is remaining back at the tabernacle. And Hophni and Phinehas would have been the obvious candidates to carry this Ark. And again, see the irony here that all Israel knew these were worthless men. They were godless. They were self-deceived. They were vile, committing acts of sexual immorality in the very temple uh, tabernacle of God. And the people of Israel are so deceived at this point that they think simply because these men have the outer garments of the priesthood and because they carry the external ark of God that surely God would be with them. And so much confidence do they have in this plan that when the ark comes into the camp, the people of Israel begin shouting loudly. We're told the earth resounds, probably also blowing the the shofar, the the lamb's uh, horn, as the trumpet. And uh, they're blowing the horns. They're shouting so much that the the Philistines hear this noise rising up from a distance away. And no doubt for the people of Israel, they, they have in their mind... Maybe the story of Joshua thinking about the time when Joshua carried the Ark of God before the people of Israel around the city of Jericho and the trumpets are blowing and they march around the city every day and then finally on the last day the seventh day they march seven times around the city and, and they all begin to shout to god and blow the trumpets and the the walls of of jericho come crumbling down or maybe they're thinking of the time when the priests carry the ark of god into the river jordan and the, the the waters part before them and they they walk across the jordan river on dry gown you see they do know their history but what they forgot is it was never about the ark It was always about the god of the ark that went with him the ark was meant to be simply a reminder of his presence a representation of the covenant now in ancient times there's also a sense in which the nations did not only see themselves as battling another nation and you get this as you as we listen in on the philistines response there's a there's a mentality that they are also uh, not just nation against nation, but God against God. The God of the Philistines, Dagon, will come against the God of the Israelites. And so there's, a, there's a much more at stake here in the minds of the people. And, then, and it wasn't uncommon for even pagan nations to carry with them... Their idols and false gods into battle as a representation that their gods will will fight for them and, and will do battle for them. This also becomes important that the Philistines are aware of the God of Israel and the plagues that came upon the Egyptians as God Himself goes to war against the Philistines in the coming chapter. But notice something else about the response of the Philistines. They seem to think that Israel is a nation like them that is polytheistic. They keep referencing gods in the plural, the gods of Israel, these mighty gods. Now, This is somewhat concerning because the Philistines have lived among the Israelites for many, many years. And yet, how is it that they still did not understand that Israel worships The one true God. They are not polytheistic. They are monotheistic. And again, we don't want to read too much into this, but I think it does say something of the worship of Israel when their rivals who live around them and with them do not understand anything of their God. And it's perhaps due to the fact that as the Philistines look on at Israel, they see not only the tabernacle to this God of Israel, but they also see the Baals. They also see the Asherah. They, they see all of these other idols and pagans mixed in to the worship of Israel. And they assume that like them, they worship many gods. And this is something of a, I think, a condemnation on the worship of Israel. We know that, again, in Judges, uh, you know, you, you remember some of the judges actually would, would have to tear down idols. And Gideon, for example, his his own uh, father-in-law, I believe it was, was was something of a priest for Baal and had a Baal statue in his backyard. And one of the things God told Gideon was to go and, and, and cut down that idol. And Gideon, being afraid to do that, he, he went by night and cut it down. And it almost cost him his life. And his, and his uh, father-in-law intervened and said, well... You know, if if Baal is truly powerful, let Baal defend himself. And they decided not to kill Gideon. And we see that Israel's worship is so mingled with the pagan idolatry from the nations around them. And this should actually cause us even to consider ourselves, to ask the question how much does the watching world around us know of God through our lives? I think one of the saddest statements that we could hear is after being around someone for an extended period of time, them suddenly exclaiming after a year or so, oh, you're a Christian? I had no idea. It has been said that we are the only Bible that some people will actually read. And it's good for us to ask ourselves, what does a watching world learn of God from my life? And it's not that we have to always be necessarily, you know, quoting theology to them or preaching at them. But we can just consider the way that that we speak, the way that we work. How do we talk of our wife? How do we talk of our children? Uh, If you are in a, a, um, you know, most workplaces, I suppose, for any length of time... Just by simply not using the Lord's name in vain on a repeated basis or, or just a constant stream of profanity coming out of your mouth. Within a few moments, oftentimes, people will look at you and be like, okay, what's your deal? Like, what's your story? Why don't you swear? What's wrong with you? You know, What's your problem? And, 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 and they'll pick up on these things very quickly. And a lot of times, we'll want to know... You know, why don't you drink at the Christmas party? I don't get it. Like, what's the problem? I'm not saying, you know, am sure there's a time when one could maybe have a, uh, a drink here or there. But obviously, drunkenness is clearly forbidden. Um, and we've talked about this before. Personally, I just choose to stay away from it. Uh, but these sort of things, I mean, as they look at your life, as they look at your marriage, as they look at your home, as they, as they watch the way you react to various jokes or comments Maybe the way that you mark your time down on your timesheet, the way you relate to customers, the way the way you, you treat your coworkers even. Maybe it's, maybe it's the guy who everyone loves to pick on, but you show some care and compassion to the man or woman. You see, the watching world should know something of our God through us, though not perfectly. They should see something of Christ. And this is what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.18. He said, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, just as God sent Christ into the world so that through Christ the, the world will be reconciled to God, now Christ. Sends you, his children, into the world and through you. It is as God is is calling out to a watching world saying, be reconciled to God. Come to Christ. Turn from the death of your sin. Come to Christ. And there is this appeal that, that goes out both in word and deed. And this is not just for the elders of the church or for missionaries on the the foreign mission field, but this is for every believer who has been indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can be praying, God, use me, help me to be a faithful ambassador. Help me to be the aroma of Christ. And even sometimes one of the most... Powerful witnesses to an unbeliever is when you do fall flat on your, fa- fa- on your face, when you, you, you make the, the, the rude comment or you're, you're dishonest about something, to then humble yourself and go back and say, listen, I was wrong to do that. I was wrong to say that. Can you forgive me, please? And that may be one of the most puzzling things of all that we could do before an unbeliever to show a sort of conviction for our sin. While the Philistines know something of this God or gods, they think of Israel, they rally themselves, take courage, they say, be men, lest you become slaves. And they, they rally themselves together against the people of Israel. And we're told plainly that Israel is defeated. There was a great, a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark was captured and the two priests of Israel were killed. A tremendous defeat for the people of Israel. And there's so many things that we could draw from this account. Not only as I just mentioned, considering what a watching world may perceive of God from our lives, but how is the church today guilty of Israel's sin? What, what did they do here that was, that was so foolish? You see, they, they misplaced their faith. Instead of putting their faith in God himself, they put their faith in the physical ark of the covenant. It is a, it's a sad tale of misplaced faith. And so as we consider churches today, we need to ask the question, how is the church today guilty of misplacing its faith? Maybe the church today, in a desire to influence the world, they decide they will just embrace the philosophies of this age. They will they will change the definition of good and evil and therefore will be able to reach out with love and kindness and tolerance. And this will win the the loss to God when they see how loving and kind we are. We say that we're all about love, but sadly, in reality, have abandoned the truth of God for a lie. And this can be tempting to churches today. A church may be tempted to look to a program or a building or even a particular person with a, a winsome personality to, to win the day and, and bring about the growth they want to see. See, Israel had the right form in many ways, but they had forsaken a true love for God himself. They had exchanged true faith and trust in God for superstition. And we see this today as well. People might think, oh, just because I'm carrying my Bible with me, that means I'm less prone to temptation. I'm more resilient against the devil because I'm carrying my Bible with me everywhere I go. That's a form of superstition. Or we, we, we think that evangelism is not so much winning people to Christ, but just taking them through a, a series of steps, a sort of formulaic view of conversion, and that this is somehow the power of God in salvation. No, it, it's superstition. Or maybe we think I'm wearing a specific piece of jewelry, a cross or something, that when I wear this cross, well, then I'm, I'm more resilient to the temptations of the devil, this sort of strange Hollywood version of, of the, even uh, dealing with demonic forces. Not that I, I watch many of these sort of movies, but I think we've all got the picture in our mind, this person supposedly oppressed by demons, and you have the, the priest that comes in and he holds out the cross as though this little physical cross has some sort of power to, to uh, you know, break the forces of darkness. That's superstition. And in fact, the Catholic Church is a prime example of this sort of religious shell with no internal life. They look to their relics. They look to their trinkets and rotting artifacts as though the possession of these things does anything for us. Instead of looking to Christ alone and His finished work upon the cross and looking to God who is our Savior. And it's so subtle. It really can be almost anything that we might be tempted to begin to look to to save us. We might be tempted to look to homeschooling itself as a sort of deliverer for our children. That because we are educating our own children, they're going to be immune from the influences of this world. They're going to be kept from the temptations of sin. Then, obviously, I'm a proponent of homeschooling. We homeschool our children. But you see that the subtle shift in our hearts, not so much looking to God himself, but to these Programs or external things that we do, having the right books. And yes, God uses various tools, but it is God alone who can save. We must remind ourselves of this. And despite all of Israel's confidence and assurance that they were going to have a great victory this day, they were tragically defeated. And then lastly, we see not only the the Israel at war and the defeat of Israel, but we see Israel in shock. And we're told this messenger of a man of Benjamin, he makes his way back to Shiloh from the battle lines. Everyone has fled. Everyone is running back to their homes. And this man whose clothes are torn, he's got dirt on his head. This is probably a sign that he himself is mourning, probably tore his own clothing, put dirt on his head as a sign of mourning of the great loss that day. And he begins announcing the news in the town. And as the man goes through, telling people what has happened, Israel has fallen, 40,000 have fallen, the, the priests are dead, the ark is taken. There is this, there's this cry that we're told is raised up in the town, and Eli sitting by the gate on his seat, anxious about the ark, we're told. He, he hears the, the, the sounds of crying in the streets, And finally the man comes over to Eli and he is anxious to know what has happened. Tell me what has happened in the battle. And we're given almost this sort of escalating style as the the man begins with the fact that that 40,000 have fallen. That the Philistines were victorious. And it, it builds up to the news that the ark of God was actually taken by the Philistines. And at this point, Eli, we're told, in a state of shock, falls off his chair and breaks his neck and dies. It is a tragic death. And it's even mentioned here, which is no doubt on purpose, that part of the reason Eli died was that he was very overweight. We're told he was very heavy. And so as he falls back, the weight of his body upon his neck is partially what kills him. Now, this is important because you remember the sin of Eli and the sons in part was that they mishandled the sacrifices of God. They were supposed to leave the meat on the, the altar until the fat had burned off, and that was to be an offering to God. The, the fat belonged to the Lord. He said, This is mine, this is part of the offering that I require of my people. And yet they were taking it off the altar and eating it for themselves. No doubt this, this uh, abuse of the sacrifices resulted in their own obesity. And, and there's even a play on words here because the, the word weight, kabod, it, it is used in, in different forms. Here, obviously referring to the size of Eli. But it's the similar word that we use for glory. Glory is, uh, is, is the idea of, of weightiness. And so there's almost a play on words here that the glory that belonged to God that Eli himself devoured is the, is the weight that actually brought about his own death in many ways. And we see this principle of reaping and sowing. It's sowing to the flesh, reaping destruction, sowing to the spirit and reaping life. You see, God is not mocked. And what might be strangest to us of all is that Eli seems somewhat unfazed by the news of even his son 's death, but it 's when the news of the ark is mentioned that Eli falls over and dies and then we have a similar picture for the daughter in law of Eli We 're told the wife of Phineas she is about to give birth, and the shock of the news sends her into premature labor. We're not told how much pre- premature. We know the child lives from later on in the account, Ichabod. But there's a similar pattern here. She hears of the, the terrible defeat of Israel, but it's really the, the, the news of the ark being taken that seems to most disturb her at all. And, and it's so shocking, so disturbing to her that she actually dies. And before she dies, she names this son, a desired son, because for the people of Israel, uh, they, they sought to have a son to continue on the family name. But even the news of a male child seems to, to barely uh, have any impact on her. All she can think about is the fact that the ark is, got, uh, is gone. And, and she names the child Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? Or The glory has departed. And it wasn't uncommon in those days to actually name your child after a major event that happened. So here is this child born on the day that Israel falls, the day that the ark is taken. And so his namesake is the glory of God has departed. We don't know a lot about this woman. We can imagine her difficult spot, married to a priest who was unfaithful to her, was known among the Israelites as an immoral man no doubt she struggled to have any respect for Phineas or to desire to you know honor him as as her husband or as a priest in the temple tabernacle of God but there does seem to be something of the fear of God in her heart is she a true believer you know we can only speculate But I do think there's a a, a clear sense in which it's only the children of God who are actually concerned for the glory of God. Does it bother you that that the glory of God is not more clearly perceived in our land? It's the Christian who thinks about these things. And sometimes we may feel ourselves unsaved or maybe we, we are so aware of our need at times but we can take courage in the fact that if you are concerned about the glory of God and you have a thought about His fame, His renown, um, even as you know, we looked at Psalm 139 last night. Even as David, Lord, uh, cause these wicked men to depart from me, slay the wicked, God. I, I, I loathe the evil that mocks Your name. Search me, O God, and see if there's any evil way in me. This is a this is a concern. Of the child of God, so I mean, the Lord knows really if if this woman uh, is a true believer or not, but there seems to be some indication that she is. And so we're left with this whole scene. This fan keeps turning my pages on me. Uh, we're left with this whole scene, a tragic scene. Eli is lying dead along the road in Shiloh. The tabernacle has now left Shiloh. Or sorry, the the, uh, ark has left the tabernacle in Shiloh. And actually, the ark of God never returns to Shiloh. This this place becomes desolate. It becomes a representation of God departing on this day. And it almost reminds us of of the letters to the seven churches where Jesus, for example, in, in Revelation 3, 1 says, I know your works, You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it, repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That is very much the picture here. Christ In his power, in his sovereignty, as the one who tends the lampstand of Israel has come and for a time removed the lampstand and they lose the the, the covenant presence and blessing of God represented by the ark taken away. And this are not here a picture as well for us. Today we see many buildings that once stood as places of worship. And yet now they are thrift stores. They are martial arts centers. They are tattoo studios and the like. And we know that God does not dwell in buildings made with hands. The, the church is the spirit of God within the people of God. And so it's as we gather that we are the church of God. But these buildings that we we. we build to to house the church you know sometimes we tell the boys we're going to the church house so that this building is a house for the church in many ways as we gather here together uh, we are the church but the building does also represent something of that gathering something of that coming together for the sake of God of of uh, who he is the, the, the communities know these buildings as, as buildings that are dedicated for the gathering of God's people. And when we see buildings that once were houses of worship turned into martial arts centers, tattoo studios, we can rest assured that the lampstand has been removed. If there is no longer a body gathering there that once gathered and that body is now disbanded, there's a sense in which the lampstand has been removed. And we have to be careful to judge motives and reasons and why God uh, may bring this about. So we want to obviously be careful, um, lest we point out the, the speck in our brother's eye and, and miss the plank in our own. But, but there is a strong sense of warning here. This is, the, this is really the, the thrust of the seven letters to the churches, to to be alert. Don't be foolish. Don't be, don't be lulled to sleep. Don't tolerate that woman Jezebel in your midst. Don't follow after the Nicolaitans whom I hate. False teachers. They're leading my people in sexual immorality. And if you don't repent, I myself will come and war against you. And I will remove your lampstand. You see, this is a tremendous warning to all of God's people. That we hold fast to Christ our head. That we walk humbly before him. And next week we'll see that God can fight for himself. He's not yet finished with Israel. He's actually clearing the threshing floor. He's plowing up the fallow ground in Israel. He's about to prepare the way for something tremendous to come. And so what seems to be... The complete desolation of Israel and the hopelessness of this nation. The end of their covenant. I mean, you think about why such a great reaction to the loss of the ark? What's the big deal? Why can't they just make another one? You see, in the mind of the people of Israel, the ark represented God's presence with them. It represented the covenant. It represented the promise of the land. It represented the, the history of Moses. That They essentially saw this as God is dead. God is gone. It's over. All that we worked for, hundreds of years of history, is now coming to an end. God is wiping his hands with us. It would have been on par with the exile into Babylon. Or on par with the destruction of Jerusalem in their mind. This is, this is a great catastrophe. God has abandoned us. We are now without hope in the world. And yet I think there's a sense in which as we close, this story points us even to a greater loss of the ark of God. Another time when Israel's future looked so bleak, so hopeless. Christ, the living ark of God, had come down from heaven. The the very presence of God among his people. And yet Christ was given into the hands of the enemies. And how dark that day must have been for the disciples to see their Messiah crucified, beaten, and to give up his spirit, to die. They saw him go into the tomb. Surely if there was a black day in the history of Israel, this was the day. They had crucified the Lord of glory. They had executed the author of life himself. How could God ever forgive such an evil crime? And yet we know, even as we'll see in this story, this is part of God's plan. God himself delivered the Son into the hands of the Romans so that Christ might be crushed for our sin, that he might be bruised for our iniquity. Christ goes into the camp of the serpent so that he himself might stomp the head of the serpent and end his tyrannical rule forever. Christ enters into the belly of death itself so that Christ might poison death from the inside and then rise out of the beast victorious for all of God's people. You see the story is not over. God is a God of redemption, a God of salvation for his people. And we have to keep our our eyes upon him. No matter how dark the night may seem, we trust that the light, the sun will dawn and let us marvel at the wisdom of god even through man's most foolish attempts to save himself god does not need saving and we will look at that again next week let's close in prayer and we will have a song together father we come before you and we just thank you for your spirit lord we trust that your word does not return to you void and lord we know that In our flesh, there is the temptation to to turn to other methods or, Lord, other techniques of growth or maturing, but God, help us to hold fast to your word, to trust that it is the ancient word, Lord, that it is the the sword of the spirit, it is the, the bread of your people. And we rejoice that Christ, the word made flesh, is alive, came out of the grave victorious, Lord, that it was not the end for your people. It was not the end of redemption, but it was actually the very means of it. And so we give you praise as a wise God that, uh, Lord, we would be slow to um, put forward our plans, but to trust in your sufficiency. Help us in these things we ask now. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.